Hello and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. Uh, we are very excited and honored to have Alicia Akins on with us today. She is a resident of Washington, D.C., describes herself as a recovering expat. Um, she loves writing. She is a deaconess at uh, Grace, D.C., downtown campus, and currently is working on a book project discussing the different feasts throughout scripture. We'll get to that a little later on and talk about her thoughts on that. But first, just want to say, Alicia, welcome so much uh, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor well, to be here. We feel the same way. It is reciprocated. What I want to ask just to get started is living overseas. Um, what was your time like over there? And I think you mentioned you were overseas for five years and we were talking before the show. What, what was your time like? What were the years you were there and what all were you doing? Yeah, so I feel very fortunate that I had such a um, diverse experience. I lived in Asia for five years, but um, from 2005 to 2008, I was in China. My first year, I lived in Shanghai and lived on the 18th floor of an apartment building. Um, my second year, I lived in the Gobi Desert in a Muslim town um, where there were only 10 Americans, um, and there were sandstorms on our way home from school. Um, and then my third year, I lived in a coastal resort town um, that's famous for its beer that was previously occupied by Germany. So if you've ever had Chinese beer, it's the logo. That city is where I lived. But my first two years, I was a full-time language student. And I also did campus ministry. And then my third year, I campus and taught English. And then that was from 2005 to 2008. Um, my last day in China was August 8th, 2008. I went to the opening ceremonies of the Olympics and then came home the next day. And then um, I went to grad school at the University of Washington in Seattle and studied China studies. I got a certificate in museum studies. And then when I finished my program there, I took a job at a museum in Laos. So I worked for two years in Luang Prabang, which is the ancient capital of the country and um, it's also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So um, there are no buildings over three stories tall. There's no um, mail delivery. So if you get a package there, they you write your phone number rather than an address and they'll call you from the post office when you get something and you have to go and pick it up. So I've had a wide range of experience from very, very metropolitan to very, very, well, very rural. Yeah, so that's what I was doing in Asia, working in a museum, teaching English, uh, studying Chinese, and working with Chinese Christians. You mentioned the sandstorms. I feel like you could have just gone to Lubbock, Texas, and gotten the same. <laughs> but I could not have ridden camels there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. It was all worth it for that. Uh, did you start your overseas experience as a college student, or was this... Before. No, I moved to China after I had graduated from college. Um, I, I had never been anywhere before that, and I didn't speak any Chinese. And it, I just kind of like jumped right in. Same with Lao. I had never been there before. I didn't really know much about the country. I didn't speak the language before I moved there. I just thought that the job looked like a an interesting opportunity. And so both times, I just kind of like jumped into the deep end. Were you a, were you a Christian? before going? Uh, yes, I was definitely a Christian before going. I went with a Christian organization to um, China. So I, I've been a Christian since I was 
a very young child as basically as far back as I can remember. And obviously that's meant more or less to me during different times of my life, but I was really involved in campus ministry in college and thought I would do ministry for my whole life. And so when I was trying to think about what I wanted to do when I graduated, I thought that I wanted to do ministry. Uh, Before you, you left for, for China, did you have expectations about what ministry or the church would look like there that were subverted when you got there? Or what was sort of your, your progression in that thinking? Yeah, so um, I had read a lot of biographies about missionaries to China, um, and most of them were very old, where like people were taking boats there. So like, of course, my experience is going to be very different from that. But I think the um, amount of sensitivity that was required in working with that population was one thing that surprised me, but even also how American God seemed to Christians. Like I wasn't prepared for that. Like I had students that I worked with that didn't want to pray in Chinese or didn't want to pray at certain times of the day because they thought that God either wasn't awake or might not understand them. And so I didn't realize how ingrained the idea in a lot of their minds was that Christianity was a Western or specifically an American religion. You mentioned the assumption that God is Western to to Chinese. I was on a mission trip as well in East Asia. And I remember this beautiful story of one of our students who had witnessed to a, a Chinese student and then had given them a Bible. And the student looks at the Bible and like, with astonishment says God speaks Chinese and a question mark and had no expectation of that being the case because they've yeah. been I think in some ways indoctrinated to believe, Hey, this is, is a so Western, Western concept that is not us. Um, it's tragic. It, and it's amazing to see that epiphany hit them. Yeah. When they come to own it, like it's such a beautiful thing. Even uh, when I was, um, living out in the desert. I lived in a Muslim town and for them it was hard to conceive of themselves as maintaining their ethnic identity but not being Muslim. They were like, I have to be Muslim because I belong to this Chinese ethnic group. Like, I can't be anything else. And so the idea that people could just kind of freely pick and choose religions like, oh that one sounds interesting, let me follow that one today was like not something that was even conceivable. To them. Their religion was very much tied in with their identity, with other identities that they had. And so it was hard for them to think about, this is something I can choose, or I'm a product of my parents' choices in this way. I'm really interested on that, uh, what, you just, what you just said. I'd be interested to kind of, if you could walk us through sort of what, what's the gospel presentation to folks from that sort of mindset what's what's the way that you sort of are able to approach them apologetically that they become open to that idea yeah so i think one of the things um that's really required if you're doing any kind of ministry to people who are not just plain atheist or agnostic is that it takes a lot of time 
a lot of time. And so be prepared to just be invested in their life and learn about who they are and learn about what they believe and how that impacts their life because it could have no impact on their life at all. And then that's a very different conversation that you're having with someone who's culturally Muslim versus somebody who's a devout Muslim um, or somebody who's culturally Buddhist versus someone who's a devout Buddhist. So I think just figuring out where they are in their religion and their understanding of it first. And then I think after that, um, asking lots of questions about how that is meeting their needs or how that is, what additional longings in life do they have that their religion isn't fulfilling? Not to say that like you couldn't go up to a Christian and they wouldn't also have answers for like, I long for this and I don't have it. But I, one of the things that I like to use was the book, The Giver, which is, seems very strange, but I couldn't sit through the Jesus film, sorry. Um, so I use The Giver because I like this juxtaposition of people thinking that they're living a full life, but not even understanding what else there is out there. Um, and like, wouldn't you know, wouldn't you want to know if there was something more that you could access that and that that could be a possibility for you? And wouldn't it be tragic if there was something more, but you never got to experience it, but other people did. So that's one of the things that I did when I um, was thinking about ministering to people in that context. You mentioned the fact that uh, people thinking they're living a full not life, but not, and that largely has to do with cultural narratives that are given and that are received and lived out. There's a, a lot, I was actually reading something by Michael Goheen earlier where he was discussing this idea and N.T. Wright's idea of what time is it that we're mm. living in the narrative. As you were, were overseas and as you were engaging and interacting with Christians and non-Christians, what were some of the clearest differences you saw between the cultural narratives that people were living in. So you, you have such a stark difference. There you have the communist atheistic view on one side, then you have this Christian idea of an intimate loving father. Mm -hmm. And so how did you see those two differ? Uh, and what was it like when they interacted with each other? Did they experience difficulties, sorrows, tragedies differently, rejoice differently? Uh, maybe there's a, a lot there. Uh, yeah. I think in general, people have the same baseline for reasons to rejoice. But I think Christians have more. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the gospel and walking with Christ, that there are things we can rejoice in that other people would never conceive of as being a reason to rejoice. And I know this is probably going to sound really hokey, but like our union with Christ when we suffer or persecution. And I think in some parts of the world where there is persecution towards Christians, that that is a very, very uh, real thing, that they are able to rejoice in that in ways that we might bristle at inconvenience in the United States when it comes to our faith. But they're really like seeing like, my family rejected me for this, but I consider this a, a joy and a necessity and something that I'm not willing to turn my back on. And um, to be deprived of some of the things that you're deprived of in communist countries for choosing to believe um, in Christ and to still consider that a joy and to still have tears in your eyes when you get to praise God when you're in a free place um, 
is really incredible. And I think for me, really helped to put into perspective what's necessary, even the difference between what's necessary, what's ideal, and what's sort of like icing. And I feel like the American church is very heavy on icing. <laughs> There's a lot that we do that isn't absolutely necessary for our faith, and it is helpful, but it isn't uh, mission critical. And I think being in a situation where you are persecuted is something that helps you develop that muscle that you can sort of be a little bit more resilient. And then I think that there are some things that Christians don't grieve in the same way that people who aren't Christians might grieve those things. The loss of certain opportunities or dreams and desires that don't turn out the way you want, I think um, that Christians are in some ways, or that the gospel can arm Christians to be more um, faithful about their futures and about how things that look on their face like they might not work out could actually end up being a good thing than other people who only conceive of uh, what they can see or this world as being things that are worth celebrating or grieving. That's wonderful. What was the typical worship experience like for you at a at a Chinese? Were you going to the state permitted church, like a, or were you going to an underground church? I had a variety of uh, worship experiences in both places that I lived in. I was not allowed to go to um, a regular church the first two years that I lived there. I met with other people. I met with other Americans uh, in someone's house, and we listened to sermons by this guy named Tim Keller. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. <laughs> I had no idea who he was at the time. No papa. <laughs> um, but we listened to sermons of his. I think they may have been on CD or MP3 or something. It was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, that was before uh, The Reason for God. Oh, you were, he, that came out in 08, I think. Oh, yeah. I would have been back already by then. When I, that was like what my church looked like. But when I would meet with Chinese Christians, we would, not, not everybody would be able to sing every week. Um, so we would sort of divide the room in half. And half of the room would get to sing one week and the other half would get to sing the next week. Mm. But in either week, you couldn't sing very loud. The idea was like, you don't want to disturb your neighbors. You don't want to draw attention to the fact that there's a group of people meeting together singing because that doesn't happen <laughs> in any other situation. Usually, unless you're singing happy birthday to someone, there isn't just like spontaneous singing <laughs> um, most of the time. So there was a lot of... We've all been singing a lot of happy birthday while washing our hands. <laughs> yes, so. that's true. And in different languages, or maybe let's just sing, but... Yeah, it was a lot of trying to make sure that we were keeping people safe. And then my third year in China, I went to an, um, an international church that met in a hotel. No, it met in an office building. And you had to have a passport to get in. So Chinese people weren't allowed to go. But there are people from all over the world there, all over Europe, all over Asia, besides China that were able to worship together. And then my first year in Laos, actually, I wasn't allowed to go to church for my job. Uh, I had signed a contract saying that I wouldn't attend church my first year. And I don't hold any hard feelings toward my employer. Like, 
I was working for an organization that worked with ethnic minorities and ethnic minorities have often been <clears throat> a target or a focus of missionaries and sometimes missionaries don't exit well um, and sometimes they don't follow up well and so there'd been a lot of broken trust between missionaries and these communities. So for me to be able to do my job, they requested that I refrain from going to church my first year. And that actually was a decision that's had a lot of that has shaped how I think about when church is restricted, how do you continue to worship? And what has like, as we've gone into this like pandemic situation where people are having to worship from their homes or it looks very different. I often think back to that time where I had to be very creative and how I created community for myself or how I maintained practices that continued to feed my relationship with God when I didn't have access to a larger body of believers. Yeah, that's a great, great point and something that I've been reading a lot about and, and hearing people say that, you know, when the coronavirus pandemic started, especially here in the United States, and churches were closed their doors temporarily, there were a lot of people making the point that this is exactly how many Christians globally experience worship all the time. Um, yeah. So I, I'd be really interested, you, you kind of hinted at a little bit of it, I'd like to hear at least a little bit more if you can. Sort of what are the lessons that we can take today as, as Christians living during this pandemic? Um, what are some of the, the lessons that we can learn from the global church about being creative and sparking our imagination to really lean full, fully into this in worship? Yeah. So I was thinking about this. This is a great question. Um, I think if you had to... if or, if you're familiar with that story about Mary and Martha and Martha being super busy and Mary just like sitting at the feet of Jesus, I think that the American church is Martha. And I think that as a culture, we could be more like Mary <laughs> during this time. who found the thing that was needed and just sat at Jesus' feet. It is nice and it is good and it is nourishing to meet together in large groups and hear volumes of people singing with you. But if that is the only way that God could be accessed, then there would be hundreds of thousands of Christians over the world who would have no access to him. And so I'm always thinking about the least common denominator or the lowest common denominator when I'm thinking about God's vision for his church. And then if it's possible for people who are poor and um, whose religious liberties are restricted and all of those things to have vibrant walks with the Lord, that it's possible for us with our current limitations to do the same. Um, on the one hand, I do, I do think sitting with the Lord more like, I think a lot of our experience of God has been mediated through church and hasn't necessarily been a direct relational experience. And so it's kind of like when you you've got a group of friends and there's somebody in the group that you're less close with. And then everybody that you're more close with leaves the room and you're left with the person you don't know so well. Um, and it's kind of awkward because it's like, I kind of know you, but I don't really know you. Um, and I think in a lot of ways that is a situation that a lot of Christians might be finding themselves in now that like God has been a part of their church experience, but he hasn't been the experience. And so now that all of the other things are out of the room, they're in the room with this, <laughs> with God. And it's like, 
I don't really know how to do this without it being mediated by someone else or manufactured in a certain way. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there just to get to know God better and to experience what is it, what does it look like to worship him when I can't use my mouth? What does it mean to worship him when I don't have this volume of people around me or when there isn't a PowerPoint or when, you know, when there isn't all of these things that I'm used to. What, what have you, have you been able to come up with any answers to that question? Have you learned anything specific? So one of the things that I did uh, when I was in Laos, well, a few things I did, I tried to do a Bible study with my family um, over the phone. My sisters and I were thinking about, and my mom were like, what might we want to study? We can all get the same book. um, And then we can have phone calls and do this over the phone. And that was before Zoom. (laughs) People here, people now have it really good because everybody's in the same situation. It's not just a one-off person here or there who's struggling with community. So you would do that. Um, I lived with Christians. uh, So we would talk about our faith together. Um, That was two people. I had an accountability partner back in the States that I would call every three weeks just to check in. Um, about we had predetermined things that we wanted to be intentional about seeing how the other was doing with. And so we would do that every three weeks consistently while I was gone. And then I would go for prayer bike rides through town, pray for my coworkers and pray for the city. Um, And that was sort of my way to not just be stuck in my head or even thinking about just my own relationship with God. And then I sent out a prayer letter to friends, just asking them to pray for my coworkers and certain things that were going in my life on a monthly basis. And so that was a way that I was sort of being accountable to people. And I think all of those things are things that can happen now as well. Like I currently have the advantage of living with two friends and we're going through a book together for Bible study. We have prayer together on Tuesday mornings, um, which we were doing actually before the coronavirus happened, but we've continued to do. Um, and so we've sort of created our own like church in our house, in our own community, in our house. I know if people live alone that that might be more difficult, but you can kind of create your own church if you wanted to. I mean, not like church plant, but like just identify three or four people or two or three people that maybe you want to read some study with, or maybe you want to have accountability with, or maybe you want to pray with together once or twice a week. And so I think that those are, those are like very analog (laughs) answers for how to innovate. It's like, go back to what people did before we had all the bells and whistles that we have today. (laughs) In his book, um, Creation Regained, Albert Walters, and it was kind of a short aside, but he says we need to start considering a reformation of the imagination. And what what does a reformed imagination look like? And with that concept, I think about uh, Hebrews 12, since we were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, um, Revelation 4 and 5, with all those who are worshiping around the throne. I remember being so astonished in class when Dr. Sinclair Ferguson was saying that when we worship on Sunday as God's people, we're entering into that. There is, a, there is a way that as being united with Christ as he is seated at the right hand of the Father and those people are worshiping on the throne. We are participating in that. And to be separated and distant and worshiping in our homes 
but also at the same time to realize that, no, 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 I am physically alone. Yes. And it is very hard. It is not easy, but in a real way, in a very real way, I have the opportunity to lift my imagination to see that there is a global and eternal uh, worship, both here and in the, the heavenly realm. Yeah. That, that's a, uh, a profound reality. I think that that's a helpful way to maybe something that you're saying there. Yeah. I mean, Hebrews also says that we have access to the throne of grace so that we can get grace and mercy in our time of need. And I, I took a class, uh, I took the Pentateuch class last semester and I did my, um, my final paper on Leviticus, the passage from Leviticus, but just thinking about really, there was a ton of hoops that you had to, to go through to get to the, to get to God during that time. And every time I can pray and like confess without an animal dead in my arms, I'm just so grateful, which is like literally every time, but I'm just like, I can come with nothing in my hands. I can come with, I didn't just get out of the shower. Like I can come as I am. And, um, I can find audience and I can find comfort and I can find whatever it is that I need because there isn't a um, barrier anymore. You mentioned uh, being a seminary student at RTS. And I know you love writing, that you love conveying ideas and truths. I also know that you're working on a book project. Yes. I would love for you to talk about that because it's about feasting and people are asking, what can you not wait? to open again. And restaurants are a huge answer. So many people are saying, I cannot wait to be back at my favorite restaurant. or I can't wait to be around the table with someone. What's your project? And uh, how do you think about the importance of feasting when there's kind of a feasting fast? Yeah. So um, I am working on a book project on feasting, as you said. And um, the idea really came out of, I think maybe now three or three and a half years ago, I lost my job. And um, I was out of work for 15 months. There were two months that I couldn't pay rent. And there was one month, it was in November. I didn't have money for food. I had like coins and change that I had around my house. And so I would like find coins actually left over from the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center (laughs) bottle drive. Um, I would get coins and I would go to the dollar store and I would get the heaviest box of junk food that I could get. Um, And I did that for a month. And then I finally got my unemployment check and went to the grocery store to get food for Thanksgiving. And then my um, credit card had been compromised by someone who tried to steal my identity. So that was like the only thing I could buy until they turned my credit card off. I remember sitting around the table at Thanksgiving and somebody said, what makes you rich? And I had never been desperate. Like I, I, I could only go places I could walk. Anyway, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I was like, even now, the answer is the Lord. Like, I believe that he gave me all of the things that he said that he would and that he has, and that I can take that to the bank. <laughs> that's more reliable than my credit card, that someone can try and steal my identity. Like, those kinds of things, my identity can't be stolen in Christ. And so this idea of Christ making me rich kept coming back and back again. And I I thought about everything that we do have in Christ and all of the things that go sort of unappreciated 
sort of like presents that get left under the tree at Christmas. Like I can't imagine a kid leaving a gift under the tree, under the tree at Christmas, but it's sort of what we do with all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And so when I originally started thinking about a book, I um, was thinking about what I could write about that would encourage people who had been disappointed in some way. And um, I remember my agent asked uh, who I thought my book was for. And I was like, I don't know, anyone who's old enough to have been disappointed a few times. And now I feel like that's everyone. <laughs> Before I was like a couple of years out of college, maybe, like maybe you lost a job, maybe something didn't work out like you thought it would. And now I'm like, the book's for everyone <laughs> because everyone's gotten a chance to be disappointed. But to your question about the communal aspect of feasting and, and what there is to look forward to that, so much of what God has given us to enjoy has he's given us to enjoy in the context of community like even the chapter that I wrote on wisdom and the feast that wisdom throws the people at the table are as important to the feast as what you're eating and even when I was working on the Passover chapter that like there's an aspect where they were choosing a lamb that would be sufficient for their family but they could include other families nearby but that people were supposed to eat together. And so at least so far <laughs> in the research that I've done, God wants to be savored and he wants part of that savoring to be how we do that together. And eventually we will emerge from our homes and go back to the places that we loved. And um, I think about the opportunity that we have now to savor things in a different way. And I hope that when we are back out in the wild, <laughs> we don't forget that. Like that was one of the things that I was nervous about when I was moving back to the States after living in Laos, that like I had learned so much and I had been able to survive with so little and I had grown in ways that I would never have otherwise grown. And I thought when I get back to the States, I'm going to forget. And um, the restaurants are great. <laughs> and feasting with friends is like, it, it's really honestly going to be this wonderful, like, earthly picture of what the restoration is going to be when everyone's hugging and seeing each other again. And like, everyone's going to be having parties and there's going to be food everywhere. And it's just going to be great. But there is something that God has for us here too in the austerity, a way that he plans to defy that because he does that with all of the theme, things that seem weak. And I, I, I really hope, my hope for the church is that we don't kind of lose sight of that once this is over, or that maybe we don't ever learn it at all. Wow, I, that is an incredible thought and word and truth, and I think it's a phenomenal place for us to land this plane. So Alicia, thank you so much for coming on. We can follow you on Twitter at Feet Cry Mercy. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Which has a great double meaning. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Which you can read about on the blog, on the about page. It explains where it got both of its names. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And again, thank you for tuning in and listening to the Lone Rob Show. <laughs>